turn in our Bibles to Proverbs chapter 2 as we continue our study there through the book of Proverbs together. Father, as we're turning the pages, we just pray that Lord, whatever that process is where we uh, sort of bring our hearts before you and prepare them to be good and fertile soil to receive the truth of your word, we ask that you would do that in each one of us. And as Gabby said, Lord, that you'd strengthen our bodies, help us to be receptive to what your spirit would speak to us through what's already been spoken forth here in the written word of God. Bless this time, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. All right, Proverbs chapter two, as we continue in our study here in the book of Proverbs, we certainly last time laid the initial foundation in regards to the intention of these Proverbs, which is predominantly, as we saw there in verse uh, one, really the verse, first six verses, excuse me, of chapter one, to know wisdom and instruction. He said to perceive words of understanding, to receive instruction of wisdom, justice, and judgment, and equity, to give prudence to the simple, that is the unlearned as well as to the young man, and we'll see much of the book of Proverbs is intended, as it will see, for the young man, for the younger generation, to increase in knowledge, to know what is right and wrong, uh, to receive discretion, and even the wise man, it says, if they have a teachable heart, will hear and increase learning. A man of understanding will attain wise counsel. And we talked about this book of receiving wisdom and again, wisdom, as we said last time, is not knowledge or information in the sense of what we might think of regarding education or intellect, and that certainly has its place. The Bible tells us to increase in the knowledge of God, and knowledge is a good thing and can be empowering to help us to, to do what's right. But wisdom is the proper application of knowledge, or wisdom is really the ability to live skillfully. And whether you have knowledge or you are deficient of knowledge, you can still have wisdom. You can still live wisely. You can operate in a way where you live well. And that's the difference, whether you are a highly educated individual or you're a completely uneducated individual, you can live wisely. And whether you're a highly educated individual or perhaps you're an uneducated individual, you can also live foolishly. And wisdom is that proper application of how to make good decisions, how to exercise prudence, to think ahead with your actions and your decisions, to think beyond the impulse of the moment. It's the ability to respond rather than react. It's the ability to know how to make decisions that use discretion to think things through in consideration, whether it's in a conversation or whether it's handling a matter or whether it's making some type of a life decision. And Solomon has given to us these proverbs here and is the primary one, as we see, writing these things under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's been addressing this value and importance of wisdom. And as we talked about, the first really nine chapters of the book are really just laying out the importance of wisdom, the need of wisdom, the value of wisdom. When he gets into chapter 10, he'll start giving these short little statements, these nuggets of wisdom where basically you have uh, insight given kind of in a, a clever or a memorable way so that we can easily recall the truth and the wisdom or advice that's given in them. But the first number of chapters is really just trying to emphasize how much we need 
to have wisdom in our life and how valuable and important it really is. As we left off last time, we saw wisdom almost sort of personified from verse 20 down through the remainder of the chapter, sort of crying out to the individual saying, please receive my instruction, listen to me, let me be a part of your life, just like Eve was created as a helper for Adam, a companion so that he would do better together with her partnership and her involvement in her life. Wisdom is personified as this lady inviting us into a relationship to offer help to us so that we would do better and avoid struggles and hardship. And as wisdom was calling out, uh, raising her voice in the squares, asking for people to partake of her, we saw this sad description of how those who rejected wisdom ended up bringing storms and hardship into their lives, brought destruction and distress and anguish, and how wisdom said, listen, the reason you made those, if I can use the term, and it does a biblical term, those stupid choices, is because you rejected wisdom and that you chose the way of foolishness rather than the advice of wisdom which was available. And so as he's speaking about these things, we now carry on in chapter 2. Solomon here comes back to this same notice statement once again, another parental exhortation. You have the older man speaking to his son, to his child, or the older generation trying to impart wisdom to the younger generation. Again, we see this repetitiously. He says, my son, if you receive my words, that is my input, my advice, listen to me, my son. Don't think that you know everything. Listen to me, my son. I have more wisdom. I have more years, Solomon's saying to his son. If you'll receive my words and treasure my commands within you. In other words, treasure to value, to see as important as if something of worth treasuring the, the, the words and commands, the instructions of the Father, so that you incline, he says, verse 2, your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding. Now notice all the verbs here. If you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her as hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. Notice God's not reluctant to share his wisdom supernaturally. And from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. So here the father is exhorting his son, please don't be stubborn. Don't disregard my counsel, my input. I'm, I'm trying to guide you. I'm trying to offer you sound advice to make good decisions, to spare you from immature, irrational decisions that you would make that are going to bring hardship and difficulty. I want you to have a blessed life. And as he comes in verse 2, really down through verse 6 or 7, you notice the continual verbs used repetitiously to speak of how it's necessary to apply oneself to be able to gain wisdom. That there can't be sort of a passive attitude as it pertains to such, but he's exhorting his son, notice, incline your ear, apply your heart, cry out, that sounds like desperation, cry out for discernment, lift up your voice, he says, for understanding, 
Seek after such like you're searching for silver, like a, a miner out in the minefields digging and searching for such things. And again, the picture here is not a passive attitude as if somehow, oh, eventually I'll get wise. But instead, recognizing I tend to be prone towards foolishness, so please, I need wisdom. And, and, and that kind of diligent attitude to pursue such. You know, the story's been told, I want to say it was Socrates, you can check me, I'm potentially wrong, but the story's been told of Socrates who had a young uh, pupil who was so impressed by his great wisdom that he was trying to glean as much as he could, and he went to him and he began to plead with him, listen, please, I just want to have the wisdom that you have. I just want to have the, just a portion of the incredible insight that you seem to possess. What, what should I do? And Socrates said to him, just ask no questions and follow me. And so the young man began to follow him as he went through the streets of the city and kept walking and turning and walking and turning. And eventually he went out to where the river was right outside of the city. And the young man just kept following and following and asking no questions. And then ultimately he walked out into the water and the young pupil followed him out into the water. And then Socrates grabbed him by the back of the neck, this young man, and he stuck his head under the water and he held him down until he started fighting and resisting. And when the young man came up, he said, when you become as desperate as you are for breath, for wisdom, then you'll begin to gain wisdom and insight. And his whole point to him was is that you can't be passive about things that are vitally important. You have to have a real passion for such. In the same way you are gasping for air and, and hungry and longing for a breath, he says, when you become like that for wisdom and you're ready to put aside foolish ways and begin to really cry out for and long for wisdom, inclining your ear, the idea is whatever I got to do, I'm willing to put in the work, to put forth the effort. I want to study. I want to learn. I want to glean wisdom when you begin to cry out for it because you realize your desperation for needing the wisdom of God. That's when it's often distributed to us. You notice in verse 4, he used that analogy Again, regarding wisdom and understanding and discernment, he says, if you seek her, what? Wisdom. As silver and search for her as hidden treasure. So the picture here is the individual who goes out mining for silver and treasures. Uh, th there was effort that was put in. There was diligence. There was digging. And that's the idea. You know, we, we can't be passive as it comes to spiritual wisdom and the things of God. We can't think that sort of automatically we'll glean such things. We have to be willing to put in the work and to seek the Lord and to cry out for such. God, I, I want understanding and wisdom from you because ultimately, notice, that is where the source is. He says, verse 5, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find like someone searching, digging like a miner out in the fields looking for the valuable silver and treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord, which remember we saw last week back in verse 7 of chapter 1, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So that's the basis that we come into a greater reverence for God, a greater fear of God and respect for God. And it's through that, he says, we will also find the knowledge of God that we begin to discover things and know more things about God, but we got to dig for it. 
We got to mine for it like treasures. You got to be willing to get into the word of God because this is the treasure chest right here where we increase in the knowledge of God and where we receive wisdom from God, particularly in the 31 chapters of this book right here, let alone the entirety of the 66 book volume that we have, the 66 book library that we have from cover to cover, which is the word of God, the inspired word of God from an all wise God who gives to us his wisdom. That's where we discover, but we got to dig for it. We got to search. You got to be willing to put in the time, whether it's studying on your own or, you know, being a part of times to hear the word of God, because ultimately notice that wisdom really stems from one source. Verse six, he describes it for the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding again notice the lord gives wisdom we saw last week as we began together talking about solomon remember what did solomon ask for when god said to him solomon you've now become the king of israel and solomon realized i am in way over my head I am young, I'm inexperienced, this is way more responsibility than I ever imagined. And when God said to him, ask what you wish, remember Solomon said, I, I need wisdom, I need an understanding heart. And it says that the Lord gave Solomon wisdom, that is supernaturally. It didn't say the Lord put him through school and got him educated, it says the Lord supernaturally gave wisdom to Solomon. In other words, it was received from the spirit of the Lord. God himself gave wisdom. And what a wonderful thing to know that the source of all wisdom isn't per se this pursuit of education or this particular line of study or even this many years of life experience, but that the pursuit of wisdom is the pursuit of God. And that as we pursue the all-wise God and we have a relationship with God and have an experience with God, he is able to supernaturally impart wisdom into our lives to give that to us as a gift even as he did solomon it's the lord who gives wisdom remember james says in chapter one if any of you lacks wisdom let him ask of god who gives freely without partiality and he doesn't give her approach in other words god never says well, what do you mean you want wisdom just use your own god promises that he gives wisdom and for us to be able to go to him, Lord, I don't know what to do in this trial. That's what James wanted to talk. I don't know what to do in this situation. God, I need wisdom. And the wonderful thing is God keeps his promises. God will give wisdom in a situation. God will just give wisdom to make you and I a more wise individual with supernatural wisdom. You may be way less educated and way less experienced than everyone else around you, and yet God can give you divine wisdom because it's heavenly wisdom that God himself gives and he imparts it by his spirit as a gift to you so that you can receive from his mouth knowledge of what to do, what's right and wrong, and understanding how to navigate a situation or to handle a matter. And you know, I'll tell you, as we keep in mind, as we go throughout all the Old Testament, the Bible tells us that the entirety of the Old Testament is really all about Jesus, Remember, Jesus said that the law and the Psalms and the prophets, all these things speak concerning me. And what a beautiful verse, verse 6 is, the Lord gives wisdom and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Colossians tells us regarding Jesus, chapter 2, that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. 
So in Jesus are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Jesus is the Lord. So through abiding in Jesus and you walking closely with Jesus, he is the source whereby the Lord can give wisdom and understanding and knowledge to you. So do you want to get more wise? Walk with Jesus. You walk with Jesus, you'll be wiser than many of your contemporaries around you, especially out there in that world. I tell you that. You just walk with Jesus. It's amazing. You know, I know people who you know, may not be the most intellectual individuals. Maybe they're not the most highly educated, but I know people who walk with Jesus for a long time, and they are some wise folk. And they have incredible wisdom, the way they live their lives, the wisdom they're able to impart, the advice they can give, how they handle situations. Why? Because they're receiving wisdom from the Lord. And what a wonderful thing that's available to all of us. Always remember that it's the Lord. He's the one who gives wisdom. And from his mouth, through his word, by his spirit, come knowledge and more understanding. Verse 7 says, he stores up sound wisdom for the upright. It almost sounds like God's got a surplus waiting to give it to people. You see, he stores it up, storing up sound wisdom. He's waiting for the upright to ask for it. And he is a shield to those who walk uprightly. So as we walk uprightly, that is, we're not crooked, we're not taking crooked or you know, mischievous paths, we just live in an upright way, we do things properly and upright, it says that the Lord becomes a shield to us. And we'll see this theme repeated continually, the protection that comes to our lives as we live wisely, as in comparison to living foolishly and the jeopardy we put our lives in when we live foolishly. He says, verse 8, he guards the paths of justice. He preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. So again, notice the repetition there. He's a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards our paths and preserves our way. When you and I choose to walk in God's way, which is a wise way of living, that's living skillfully, God's way is always the way of wisdom, as compared to the world's way is always the way of foolishness. When we walk wisely according to God's ways and according to what God instructs in his word and, and take God's wisdom to apply it to our lives, the benefit is it says that he guards our paths and preserves our way. You can actually build in a, a safety protection to your life. And it doesn't mean you're going to be immune from problems and hardships and difficulties, but what you are going to do is you're going to avoid a lot more slippery slopes, and you're not going to crash as much, and you're not going to put yourself in jeopardy in situations where there's risk and vulnerability because you're going to live in a way whereby as you stay within God's wise boundaries, he's going to preserve your way and guard your path from things coming in to bring more harm and regret. Verse 10 says, notice, and when wisdom enters your heart, isn't that interesting? He's not talking about the head, but the epicenter of who we really are, our heart. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, that is, you find pleasure in knowing what is right to do, that's what you care about most, it pleases you, you find it pleasant to just do what's right, then discretion, again, notice the repetition theme, discretion will preserve you, and understanding will keep you from error, the ideas. To deliver you, and now he's going to say the things that it keeps us from, and he's going to say understanding and wisdom and discretion, these things, one of the benefits is they will keep us from unhealthy people. He's going to talk about from the evil man and from the evil woman, and there are both out there. 
There are evil men and there are evil women. And it's so important that we not be naive in failing to recognize and admit there are unhealthy people in this world. There are toxic people. There are dangerous people. There are people who live in rebellion to God, in disregard to God, and we have to be conscious of that. And we have to navigate life and understand how to do relationships and how all that pertains to not getting ourselves ensnared and getting ourselves drawn off path and, and, and things that we enter into with relationships with people that just drag us down or can be something to sabotage our own lives. And so he says, look, this is another benefit of wisdom. It will preserve you and keep you. Look at verse 12, to deliver you, to, to set you free, to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. It'll keep you from the perverse man who's crooked. That's the idea of perversity there, not just perverse in the sense of sexually perverse, but just the word perverse in the Hebrew is just twisted. Someone who's just a twisted person. The way they think is twisted. The way they view things is crooked. The way they operate, it's crooked and perverse. It will keep you from that individual. From the man who speaks perverse things, from those, notice, who leave the paths of uprightness. Isn't that interesting? To leave the path of, of uprightness sounds like at one point they were on that path. But not everybody stays on that path. And some will leave the paths of unrighteousness. They turn to perverse ways. They veer off course. And he says, if you walk in wisdom, it'll keep you from turning away from that path of uprightness. It'll keep you on the right path. He says, verse 13, to walk in the ways of darkness, who, and he's referencing the evil man that's not healthy to stay away from, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perversity of the wicked, whose ways are crooked and who are devious in their paths. So notice, God says, I'm not saying it, you're not the one saying it, God says right there in his spirit-inspired word, there are those who not only walk in ways of darkness, was verse 14, he said, there are people on this earth who actually rejoice in doing evil, that they find some sick pleasure in doing evil things, in doing dark things. They actually delight, the word delight means Enjoy that you find pleasure, fulfillment. They delight in the perversity of the wicked, those who find enjoyment in perverse, wicked things, whose ways are crooked and devious in their paths. And he says, wisdom will preserve and protect you from getting drawn away in those things, from following the evil man or partnering with the evil man who will lead you down those paths that they themselves are on that are self-destructive. Verse 16, he then also says it will also not just deliver you from the evil man, but now he starts about talking about delivering you from, we might say, the evil woman. He describes here, to deliver you, verse 16, wisdom will deliver you from the immoral woman, from the seductress who flatters with her words, who forsakes the companion of her youth, of course, referring to her husband, her companion from youth, and forgets the covenant of of her God, for her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. None who go to her return, nor do they regain the paths of life. 
So here he cautions against not just the danger of being pulled away by an evil person and partnering with an evil person and getting caught in this toxic, unhealthy relationship, but he also warns here of the influence of the seductress who is an immoral woman. And he says the immoral woman who, notice verse 16, he describes is a seductress, the idea is who seduces, who knows how to manipulate and influence a man in a way whereby you know, bringing down his guard to be able to get what she desires, to seduce him sexually. He says the seductress, and notice, flatters with her words. The power of words. And again, interesting, and we'll see this repetitiously through chapters 5, 6, 7, as, as we get into those other chapters as well, there'll be a whole length of section about this warning the man, particularly the young man, from the danger of being seduced into sexual immorality and being drawn off path in that foolish course that brings pain and regret and destructive things into their life. He's going to ultimately say that, sadly, some men, like an ox to the slaughter, they just get drawn away. And, 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 and noble men, he's going to say, they become reduced to a crust of bread. And they don't realize for just a moment's pleasure and the seduction that they're drawn into, they end up forfeiting valuable things, forfeiting their very lives. And here he brings to the attention how to guard against that, to recognize the immoral woman seduces. Interesting, we would think with her attractive looks and her seductive outfits. But notice he says, the seductress who flatters with her words. Again, speaking to the man in a way whereby she reduces his you know, guard to be dropped and, and gets him to be you know, more drawn in and doing it through flattery, through flattery. And, you know, that makes complete sense because, you know, we know how the dynamic is. You know, the seductress flatters a man with her words by saying things to him in flattery that typically aren't even true, but feed his ego and his self-esteem. Oh, you're so smart. Oh, and I mean, oh, my goodness. And you're, 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 you're so handsome and you're this and that. And, and the seductress uses flattery. His wife, who is his helper and his companion speaks to him in reality. She says things more like, you're not really going to wear that in public, are you? Because she cares about his self-image. But the seductress says things, and then the husband begins to listen to that stuff, or a young man begins to listen to that stuff, and there's the affirming and the affirmation, and all of a sudden that the ego is built up, and interesting that the man is drawn in by that, because his ego is stroked and he feels important and it makes him feel you know, special in some way. And little by little, she is just drawing him in with her words and forsaking notice in her own evil, the companion of her youth. She's willing to forget the covenant of her God and yet draw this man into sexual perversity and immorality with her. And look, this is the, the tragedy that oftentimes when people become completely deceived in this situation that they don't see is, is to recognize the reality of, look, if she is willing to forsake the covenant of her husband to draw you into a sexually immoral relationship or adultery, what makes you think she's not going to turn right around and do the same thing to you? If she was willing to cheat on her own husband, the covenant of her youth, are you really thinking long-term she's going to give loyalty to you? And look, and this works both ways. And I don't know how many times I've tried to tell people this. Look, you are kidding yourself. 
to think that that's going to work long term. If they're willing to be immoral and, and unloyal to their own spouse, they're not going to be loyal to you long term. They're going to be loyal to you for a season until the next better thing comes along. And, and it's a struggle of the condition. You know, and, I, and I would just say, and you can feel free to prove me out in this, and this is just something I think that's very interesting. And I don't know if it's to, I don't know if it's to emphasize the foolishness of us as men, because it could be that very well. Because men can be very foolish. Because men are driven by passions. And sometimes those, that can really be a real backfire on men. And it could be the foolishness of man, or it could be just indicating the dangerous, seductive nature of immorality within a woman who has ill intentions. But when we read the book of Proverbs, you're going to watch God repeatedly warns men about being seduced by a woman, but you don't find anywhere where God warns women of being seduced by men. God always uses it in the other way. God always says, don't be foolish, son, and let yourself be seduced by an immoral woman. And repeatedly, we find this emphasis again and again and again. Notice he says, her house, if you want to go down that road, it leads, notice, to death, her paths to the dead. So God's saying it's, it's a pathway to a graveyard, a moment of sexual pleasure and deviating in that way, getting drawn in by those seductive words of a of flattery to enter into a relationship, to enter into sexual sin. He says, it's, it's a pathway to a graveyard. None who go to her, nor do they regain the paths of life. Again, sad, sometimes they go down a path and they, they're never able to regain what they lost. Sometimes it results in great, great loss, especially if there's no repentance and no turning to Jesus for forgiveness and restoration. People can lose it all and never regain what they once had. He says, verse 20, so you may walk in the way of goodness and keep to the paths of righteousness. For the upright, he says, will dwell in the land and the blameless will remain in it. Contrast again, but the wicked will be cut off from the earth and the unfaithful will be uprooted in it. So again, the Bible gives this contrast, the way of the wise, the way of the foolish, the way of the righteous, the way of the wicked. And clearly in verse 20 and 21, he says, the way of the person who walks in the good and righteous ways of God, that's the wise individual, the person who lives wisely and walks in good, righteous paths, he says, they're gonna dwell in the land and they're gonna remain. The idea is they will build stability into their lives. That's how you build security. Do you wanna build stability into your life? Do you wanna safeguard your life and build a secure, stable life he says, live wisely, walk righteously. In contrast to that, he says, the person who lives wickedly and foolishly, it may look like for a season, and it does sometimes, like nothing's going wrong, and like it's just all working out, but ultimately, it is just a simple deception for ultimately what ends up with the whole thing crashing down. And he says, ultimately, the person who's living in wickedness will be cut off and they'll end up being uprooted. So to live wickedly is just a pathway towards instability, insecurity, and ultimately, it all just falls apart. It may be a matter of time, but it will ultimately fall apart because, again, God cannot ultimately bless and condone evil. Ultimately, that is just a self-destructive path, and it will just sabotage the person who chooses that way. Chapter 3, notice again, he goes back to my son. Again, 
older gentleman, older person speaking to the younger generation, please listen to me. My son, he says, do not forget my law, the guidance, the boundaries that I've given to you. Again, that's what a law is. A law is a set of governing boundaries, not to restrict people, but what? To keep them safe. That's what laws exist for, to keep people safe and living orderly. Don't forget my law, my son. I gave you boundaries for a reason. I care about you. But let your heart instead, he says, keep my commands. In other words, don't cast them away. Let your heart hang on to the commands and instruction I've given to you. He says, verse 2, the benefit of doing that, for length of days and long life and peace, they will add to you. Again, notice, if the, the, the young man, the young woman listens to the commands of the parent, follows and takes the instruction of those who are older and wiser and puts those things into practice and hangs on to those things and says, you know what, that, that's good wisdom. And they embrace those things that they learn from their parents or those who are older and wiser than them. He says, it will add length of days and it will bring a life of peace to them. In other words, it will be a life that will be lived in a lot more of a safe and a healthy way, right? In the same way that if you observe the, the, the laws of the road and you drive within the speed limits and you stop at red lights and you... you if you do those things, there's probably a lot less percentage of a chance that you're going to get in an accident, get hurt, and die, right? Now, I'm not saying that other people can't contribute to accidents, but if you disregard the speed limits and you break the laws and you ignore the laws and you blow through red lights, then the probability of you harming or killing or destroying yourself is greatly increased. You're jeopardizing your own safety and you're potentially risking your own problematic situation because the probability is also going to go up. There's going to be red and blue lights in your rearview mirror. And you're not going to be very peaceful if you're finding yourself paying for expensive tickets. So again, in the same way that's true of keeping laws on a roadway, the same is true with the laws of morality, God's laws, God's wisdom. That if we live within God's laws of wisdom and we listen to those older and wiser and the younger generation listens to the older generation and observes those boundaries and takes those things to heart, he says, it's, it's going to keep everybody a lot more safe. It's going to keep everybody avoiding crashes and problems and speeding tickets and issues and penalties and problems. Instead, it's going to let them live a more peaceful life. Now, that being said, let me just use this as an analogy of something I said last week. We have to be very careful as we go through the book of Proverbs that we don't take the book of Proverbs and take it all as blanket promises rather than understanding it as a book of biblical principles of wisdom. Because that being said, you may look at verse 2 and think, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. I know people who did things right. They lived a moral life. They followed Jesus. They did everything right and they died early. They didn't have a long life. They died prematurely. And, and that doesn't make sense. And, and look, I can give you the greatest example of that. How about Jesus? Jesus did nothing wrong. Jesus never sinned. He never violated the law of God. Jesus said, I didn't come to you know, get rid of the law. He said, I actually came to fulfill the law. So Jesus lived perfectly and righteously, and yet Jesus didn't have a long life, did he? His life ended just a little over 30 years old, and that was part of the will of God for him. 
So again, same may be true of a missionary, does everything right, but yet they lose their life early. So again, we have to be careful. We can't just take verse one and two here and use that as a blanket promise. Oh, well, if you do what's right, and, and then, then you're gonna have a long life and you'll have a peaceful life and problem-free. And that's not what God's promising. What God is saying is this is a general principle. It's a general principle that when you walk in wisdom, you're gonna stay a lot safer. And typically your life is gonna be a lot more long-term, safe, healthy, and beneficial. And you're gonna have a lot more peace and a lot less misery and regrets and problems. It's a principle. It's not necessarily a promise. And so again, that's very important because as we go through Proverbs, sometimes people want to stamp something like it's a promise of God, and you can really start to get confused in that track. And here he's just giving a general principle of wisdom. He says, verse 3, let not mercy and truth forsake you. Again, notice the balance, truth, righteousness, but also mercy for when failures and mistakes happen. Hang on to both. God is light, but God is also love. Balance, we want to hang on to both, not be all about mercy, 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 and setting aside truth and what's right, not being all about, well, look, this is the truth. Get over it, deal with it, and have no mercy. We want to have both. He says, hang on to both. You need truth and mercy. Don't let either forsake you. Bind them around your neck. The idea is wear them like a necklace. Hang on to them. Keep them close to you. And then he goes on to say, write them on the tablet of your heart. The idea is engrave them there. And so if you do that, you will find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. So he says, do you want to find favor with God? He says, mercy and truth. Keep a balanced life. Love mercy, love truth, walk in both. Don't fly to either extreme. Maintain a life of mercy and truth. And he says, you'll remain in favor with God. God's favor will be upon you. And in the same way, do you want to have favor with men? That is, do you want to have favor in your relationships? Speak the truth and love to people. Always be truthful with people. Don't be dishonest. Always be clear and forthright and always deal in the realm of truth. And also, always be willing to show mercy and always be willing to extend mercy and be compassionate and patient when people need mercy, and you'll have favor in your relationships. He's saying this is the key to not only having favor with God, but having favor as well with your fellow man to hang on to those two things. And then verse 5 and 6, probably the perhaps most famous verses in the book of Proverbs that many of us have heard and know. He says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he shall direct your paths. So notice here, God gives wonderful counsel to us, very wise direction regarding, notice the end of verse six, living a God-directed life, living a divinely directed life, having him, God, direct our paths. And I don't know any person who knows and loves the Lord that doesn't want that as the ultimate goal of their life. That we want, Lord, I just, would you please direct my paths? Lord, guide my steps. I, I don't want to take, I've taken my own path. Tried that for a while. You know, for almost 18 years of my life, I was guiding and, and taking my own course and, and guiding my own paths. Didn't work out too well. I was making all kinds of wrong turns. I was crashing here and there. I, I was confused. I was getting lost. And things, it took me 18 years to figure out much better if I let God have the steering wheel and direct my paths. 
And that's what we all want. We want the Lord to direct our paths. Well, listen, he tells us here how we can experience that. God wants to direct our paths. He shall direct your paths. What does God want of us to be able to direct our paths? Well, first of all, verse 5, he says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In other words, with all of your being, put your full reliance and trust upon God in the sense that you just surrender yourself to God. God, I have no authority over my life. God, God, I don't want to be in control of my life. God, I don't need, I just, you are a wise God. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Psalm 139 says, all my days were written in your book before one ever came to be. God, I'm just turning one page at a time. You know every chapter of the book of my life. You know how many chapters it is. You know how it ends. You know the good chapter. So Lord, I just, I trust you with all my heart. Lord, I just, I let go. And, and you know, that's sometimes that's one of the things that for us as people in good intention, sometimes that, that's one of our biggest issues is we don't know how to just, we, we use the cliche phrase, let go and let God be still and know that he's God. The whole concept is, is stop trying to play God. Let go. Let God do his job. Let him be sovereign. Let him be in control. Trust the Lord with all your heart. Lord, I can't control so many things so help me to stop trying to control the uncontrollables. I'm not saying we shouldn't control the things we should. That's called stewardship and wisdom and response. And the book of Proverbs talks a lot about that. I'm not talking about laziness and irresponsibility. I'm talking about, yes, we control the controllables, but we also trust the Lord with all of our heart, realizing there are so many things that are uncontrollable. And so, Lord, I just trust you with all of my heart. Whatever comes down my path, whatever unfolds, I, just, I trust you, Lord. I'm just surrendered. I'm not in control. You are. That we bring our heart before the Lord in that way and just rest in that. And then notice, lean not on your own understanding. In other words, don't put reliance upon your own perception of what's right and what's wrong using your own human reasoning, right? One man said before, living by faith is living without scheming. That's how you know you're living by faith, when you're not scheming. And with your own understanding, trying to work an angle or make something go a certain way or through a conversation or an interaction, you're, you, you know, you're, you're like Jacob. That's what Jacob was, right? Jacob was a master manipulator, and he was good. <laughs> and people are good. They're, as human beings, we become master manipulators if we allow ourselves to go down that path. And we lean on our own understanding. I think this should end up that way. I think this should go this way. And we use our own, let's think about it, limited human understanding, and, and we think that we understand exactly how things should go, and, and so then we just, we start Im implementing that. We use our own understanding. Well, I'm just going to steer things in this direction, or I'm going to do this, and, and God says, be careful of that. Be careful of leaning on your own understanding. There's a lot that you don't know. There's things you don't see. God says, I, I thought you were just going to trust me with all your heart. Why are you leaning on your own understanding? <laughs> I thought you were going to just say, God, I trust you with all my heart. And God says the opposite of that is when we're leaning on our own understanding, that's how we start to get in trouble, using our human reason to think through things. And he says, instead, in all your ways, acknowledge him. Again, prayer. Lord, I'm trusting you with all my heart. I know my own understanding is limited and I may be wrong in this. So Lord, I'm just acknowledging you. You're God. Work in this situation. Lord, please take control. Just show me one step at a time where you're leading, what you're doing. And look, God says, if you do that, I'll direct your paths. I want to direct your paths. God wants us to be able to live 
a divinely directed life. And all he's looking for us is that we would just yield to his direction that he wants to supply and let him direct us. He says in connection to that, perhaps verse 7, and do not be wise in your own eyes. We might say, be careful of thinking that you know everything. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Don't be someone who thinks that your perspective is always correct. Always be willing to be open. You know what? Maybe my perspective is wrong. Maybe my viewpoint is off. Maybe I don't understand things fully the way that I thought. He said, be careful of that. Don't become so... And again, interesting as he's talking, my son, my son, because what is a common tendency, at least at some phase, right? All of us who've been raising kids and those of us who raise kids into adulthood, every child goes through that phase somewhere where they're very wise in their own eyes, right? You can tell them nothing because they know everything. You don't, but they do. They know everything. They don't need your input. They don't need your advice. Quite honestly, they're smarter than you, even as a parent. And, and, and everybody kind of goes through that. Right? We all went through that. And, and all that's a part of youthfulness, that lack of teachability. And, and thankfully, ultimately, God kind of chastens us and gets us out of that as God you know, takes the air out of our sails and lets us realize, don't be wise in your own eyes all the time. Sometimes there's a benefit of realizing that you know, you may not know everything. He says, instead of doing that, fear the Lord and depart from evil. And notice the benefit, if we do such, it will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. So God says, it'll give you a healthy life. Do you want to live a healthy life, God says? Do you want to live a life that's healthy and strong? There's the answer right there. Verse nine, he says, and honor the Lord with your possessions and the first fruits of all your increase. God's Response to that, and so your barns, the principle, he says, will be filled with plenty, and your vats will overflow with new wine. So here God speaks to the wisdom of how we manage our resources, and he'll speak much about this as well in the book of Proverbs, the first mention of it here. And notice the heart behind how we manage our resources. It's not the fact that God needs something, right? Because the Bible tells us, we saw in the book of Psalms together, that God said, the world is mine. God said, if I was hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. Now, some televangelists wouldn't tell you that, but, but God says that. If I were hungry, if I couldn't pay a bill, if the ministry was crashing, God said, I wouldn't even tell you. God says, I would never say it because God's an all-sufficient God. He's not lacking. The Bible says he owns a cattle on a thousand hills. The whole world, it all belongs to God. God isn't needy. And God doesn't even ask for us to give unto him any portion of our resources in any capacity, financially, time, energy, talents. He doesn't ask because he needs something from us. God doesn't ask us to give to raise resources. God technically asks us to give to raise children because he's trying to purge from us selfishness and greediness and lack of trust and dependence upon him as our provider and our supplier. And so here he says, what's the root basis of giving anything unto the Lord of our possessions, what we have, of our increase, of what we make and generate in any way? He says, verse nine, it's to honor the Lord. It's to honor the Lord. It's to be able to acknowledge the principle of Deuteronomy chapter 8, where God says in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it is the Lord your God who gives you the power to create wealth. And so look, whether that is the farmer sowing a seed in the field 
and praying and hoping the rain will come and hoping that the miracle of what God's created in seed and sunlight and photosynthesis and all that that's going to work and he's going to bring in a crop and be able to have food for his family and sell some of that and have whether it's that or whether it's the person taking care of their herds and taking care of their flocks or whether it's the carpenter working on things and fixing and repairing things or whether it's the businessman or whatever maybe or whether it's the shrewd manager who's able to take five talents and turn them into 10 talents whatever he says the power to create wealth it's from God. The giftings, the opportunities to work, the, you know, the, the blessing and favor upon what we do when we do put our energy into something, all of our possessions, they're all from God ultimately. They're things he entrusts to us. As we do our part, God provides and we do accrue a degree of possessions and the first fruits of our increase that come in from our labors and he says that with such things, we should acknowledge God as provider by honoring the Lord with some portion of our possessions. That we should say, Lord, I want to honor you as provider and a good father and show you that I trust you to provide more for me because you provided it all anyway. And that we honor the Lord as an act of worship by giving to him of some portion of our possessions. And notice, with the first fruits, he says, of all your increase. Notice, that's how we honor the Lord. We give the first unto the Lord. The first unto the Lord. We don't give the leftovers unto the Lord. We give the first unto the Lord because we're acknowledging and doing such, Lord, by giving the first fruits. And understand, in that day in an agricultural society, when they said give the first fruits, it was the first portion of the harvest that came in. The indication was this is the beginning of the entire harvest. So the harvest didn't come whew, all at one time. As soon as the first part of the harvest came in, instead of them saying, oh no, we better keep this because what if no more comes in? Or we better keep this to make care we take. Instead, they said, look, this is an indication God's providing. So they'd give the first fruits unto the Lord to honor him. Lord, thank you for providing through what we have done in our work. And Lord, we trust you and we give you these first fruits as a way to honor you as our provider and our caretaker. And we trust that you're going to bring the rest of the harvest in afterwards. And so this is to be the attitude that we give our first and our best. Again, so whether it's our financial resources, whether it's the first fruits of our energy or of our time or of our talents or of whatever resources and whatever God's given us and entrusted to us, the, the principle is to honor God is to give God our best, not to give God the leftovers the excess. You know, one man said before, God doesn't like leftovers any more than you do, right? And, and I think God's worthy of our best. And it's our way of showing the Lord honor by saying, Lord, I want to honor you before I honor myself. And, and that's the attitude. In doing that, we are saying, Lord, I honor you more than I do my own selfish pursuits. I honor you more than this thing I want to buy. I honor you more than this way I could spend my time. I want you to have the first. And then whatever is left, Lord, I can manage that as a steward in a discretionary way, but you're worthy of the best of the first. And that's the heart behind it. And that we do it as a way to honor God over honoring ourselves or honoring other things. And look, here's the wonderful principle of living such a way wisely and in faith, he says, in so doing, your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. The idea is that you're never going to outgive God to a degree where God goes, oh my goodness, I didn't think you'd give that much. 
How am I going to ever catch you up now? Oh, no. That, you know, the Bible repeatedly teaches the concept that, that as we give unto the Lord, as we have an open hand, that God's always able to refill. And God's always able to redistribute and to, to give back. We're going to see in the Proverbs you know, that, that he who gives to the poor, he says, lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. That's one of our Proverbs we're going to see. He who gives to the poor lends to the Lord, and then the Lord repays. And he repays much better. And this is a faith principle, understanding to live a life of sacrifice and giving, whether it's, oh man, if I give that time unto the Lord, how? God will, will give back the time. If I give my resources to the Lord, how am I going to pay my bills? And I, God will give back. God will allow things to be blessed in a way. And this is the idea. You can have God's blessing on your resources, or you can manage your resources your own way and rob God's blessing on your resources. You can have God's blessing on your life and your time and your energy, or you can keep it all and use it all for yourself, and you can retract and miss the opportunity of God blessing such a thing. He's promising God blesses when we have that willingness to trust him, to honor him with a giving heart and attitude. Verse 11 and 12, we'll conclude with these. It's probably a good stopping place for this evening. He says, and my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, now he's talking about correction, nor detest his correction, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects, just as a father, the son in whom he delights. So notice he uses the analogy of a day when parenting was done properly, where fathers and mothers weren't trying to befriend their children, when fathers and mothers are seen as appropriate authority in their children's lives to keep them healthy and safe and developed, and children weren't ruling the parents, parents were ruling their children. And he says a part of that was that is a necessary, natural, appropriate thing for a father in love, delighting for his son, would correct his son. And we're going to see lots, again, of biblical proverbs of wisdom about this very thing. You know, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child, we're going to read. But the rod of correction will drive it far from him. In other words, God's saying it is natural for a child to behave foolishly because they're a child. Immaturity produces foolishness and foolish bents and foolish attitudes and foolish ways of behaving and, and patterns and habits. So he says... That's bound up in the heart of a child. And it's the, it's the rod of correction, the disciplinary rod of correction that drives out foolish behaviors from a child, that drives out foolish attitudes and selfish tendencies. And that's the parent's job to, through the rod of correction, to drive that stuff out of their kid's life that would make them not have a good character. That's part of the role of a parent to do that. Not in a punitive way, not in an angry way, not in a, you frustrated me so much, now I'm going to beat you and freak out on you in Walmart, which to me, when I see that as an indication, the issue here is you don't parent your child and now you're embarrassed in a public place because your child just acted out of control. And by you behaving like a child now in public, you just showed me you're a very poor parent at home. It's a consistent understanding of I correct, I correct, I correct, I correct. That's the continual process for the welfare of the child. And he says, look, in the same way the parent does that, he says, don't despise, don't be discouraged, and don't resist 
when God, who's a loving, perfect father at times in my life, says, I need to correct you there, Tony. I need to correct your attitude. I need to correct what you're doing wrong. And God, out of love for us, because he's raising us as a good father, he will correct us at times. He'll call us out. He'll reprove us. Sometimes he'll bring a disciplinary action into our life, and he'll use. Sometimes it's circumstances that are hard. Sometimes, But God has ways of, at times, chastening us and correcting us. And look, don't be discouraged by that. The Bible says that's how you know God loves you. See, if, if you don't love your child, then you just let him go self-destruct, right? That would be in case you don't care. Because you do care, you put in the effort, and kids don't understand that you put in the effort to correct and discipline and guide them. And because God puts in the effort to discipline, correct, and guide us, and sometimes he puts the pressure on in our lives to hold us to account or to correct us, that's God's way of saying, I love you. I love you. Don't get angry. Don't get resistant. Don't get discouraged. I love you. I'm just trying to help develop your character. And it's the wise man, the wise woman who sees that and appreciates it and realizes, God, that's going to get foolish things out of me that wouldn't be good for my character. And the wonder that God is willing to do that for us. Let's stand together and let's pray.